So you'll remember last week we examined the end of chapter 4 where good news reaches the ears of the Israelites as Moses and Aaron return from the wilderness of Midian and relay the facts about how God has met them and God has sent them, commissioned them to rescue the people of Israel and bring them up from out of slavery in Egypt. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. Verse 30 of chapter 4. Verifying for these people that this is a divine visitation. This is not just a couple of men just blowing smoke, but God really has met with them. And that's corroborated by the signs. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Imagine being there at that meeting. We all have ups and downs in our lives. It's the same with a a group of people, a family, uh, any sort of society, a church. There's ebbs and flows. Sometimes are hard times, sometimes are good times. Imagine being in that meeting when Moses and Aaron come with this message that God has sent us to you to bring you up from the land of Egypt. God has heard. God has seen. God has remembered His covenant that He made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God knows your suffering and God is doing something about it. The people likely had their questions and Aaron or Moses did these signs. The grammar's not crystal clear who exactly it was that did it. Probably Moses. Throwing the staff on the ground and it becomes a snake. Putting his hand in the fold of his garment and pulling it out and it's leprous. And putting it back in and it's cleansed. And there's this corroboration of this message. Such that the people have strong grounds to believe that their cries have indeed reached the ears of Yahweh. And Yahweh has heard, seen, He knows, He remembers His covenant and He is now visiting His people. And they bowed their heads and worshipped. And we read in chapter 5 and verse 1, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Maybe it was the next morning. We don't know. You could imagine these guys worshipping into the night, praying, having a pious meeting of worship, devotion to the Lord, and everybody's feeling good and flying high. Perhaps the next morning Moses wakes up. Now it's time to go and talk to Pharaoh. You could imagine that there would be this sense of confidence and a sense of optimism and eagerness. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. This is Charlton Heston from the old, uh, what was it, in the 50s? Cecil B. DeMille directed the movie The Ten Commandments. And the man who plays Moses marches in strong. Let my people go. This is the image we have of Moses coming in with a holy boldness and making a demand on behalf of Yahweh. Presumably, Moses was expecting Pharaoh to say, 
Okay. Because you look at verse 22, Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Moses was evidently expecting a pretty favorable answer. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh responds not only by saying no, but in fact making the situation worse for the Israelites. Not only do you have to make a certain number of bricks, not only do you have to meet your quota, but now you have to provide the materials. So the mason shows up on the job site and it's like, wait, yeah, there's no sand, there's no gravel, there's no concrete mixer, there's no shovels, there's no wheelbarrow. You have to do all the work and you have to get all the supplies. You can just imagine the frustration of these people as they realize this is essentially an impossible task. Of course, they fail to meet quota and the foremen are beaten. Everybody's discouraged now. They had this meeting. The people bowed their heads and worshipped. They felt like Yahweh was with them. They felt like Yahweh was on their side. But now here they are in a worse situation than they were in before Moses and Aaron arrived. It was not all roses. It wasn't like a Hallmark movie where everything plays out kind of as expected and where the good guys defeat the bad guys, at least not yet. There was a detour, a obstacle, and a major one at that, in the way of Yahweh's announced plan to get the people out of Egypt and their actual exodus. And that detour or that obstacle was the opposition, the strong opposition of Pharaoh. It was not all roses. But God never said it would be. Look back at Exodus chapter 3. Listen as I read from verses 7 to 22, where God meets with Moses at the burning bush. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the land, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians." Where did God say that it was going to be smooth all the way through? Not there. Not in the instructions to Moses. Can you find me a passage of scripture anywhere else in which God says that it's going to be smooth all the way through? That there are not going to be any difficulties? That there are not going to be any detours or roadblocks? There aren't any. There are no scriptures to that effect. God never said it would be easy. In fact, if you were listening carefully, the opposite was implied in verses 19 and 20 that I just read. And as and it had also been previously stated in Genesis 15:13 and 14 that it would actually be very difficult that there would be a long time of suffering. Genesis 15, of course, wasn't written yet, but it surely would have been part of the oral tradition, the remembrance of the people's history that would have been passed down from generation to generation. God had never said it would be easy all the way through. In fact, God had said the opposite, that it would get worse before it would get better. Look at Exodus three nineteen and 20. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Or Genesis 15, 13 and 14. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As I said, Genesis 15 wasn't written yet. But it would have been part of the oral tradition. Abraham would have told Isaac, and Isaac would have told Jacob, and Jacob would have told his children. Evidently, it was passed down at least four generations. Because in Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 and 25, the last couple of verses of the book of Genesis, Joseph is dying, and he says to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So there was this consciousness in terms of the people's understanding of their own history that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that though they would be slaves in Egypt, eventually God would judge Egypt and and strike them with a mighty hand, and afterward, God would bring them out. And when that happened, they were to carry up Joseph's bones. This was part of what they already knew. This was part of what had been passed down to them. God had said it would get worse before it would get better. Why was that God's plan? That things would get worse before they would get better. That it wouldn't be easy all the way through. That it wouldn't be smooth. Why was it God's plan that Moses would march in and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. And Pharaoh would say, Who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. Why was that God's plan? We're not always given the answers of why God causes His people to suffer. We're not always given the answers of why His plan involves putting His people through suffering and prolonging, elongating their suffering. In this case, however, it seems that we are given an answer. That God wanted to show His strength. At the end of all of the plagues, which we'll come to in due time, Lord willing, in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 4, just before the crossing of the Red Sea, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 17, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 23, David is praying. And he says, Who is like your people Israel, 
the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. You see, God was setting up a opportunity for him to display his power against the mustard strength of the Egyptians. In mixed martial arts, some fighters are better at one thing than another. Let's say that a guy who has particularly strong striking skills, punching, kicking, is fighting a guy that has particularly good grappling skills, wrestling and throwing a guy down on the ground and submissions and that kind of stuff. If the striker knocks out the grappler, nobody's surprised. If the grappler submits the striker, nobody's surprised. But if the striker submits the grappler, it shows his utter domination over him. Because he beats him, not at the point of his own strength, but at the point of his opponent's strength. It seems that in the case of the Exodus, God allows Egypt to demonstrate its full strength and resilience before overcoming it anyway. God is setting up a situation whereby Pharaoh is hardening himself, mustering his strength, mustering his resistance, mustering his power, until Pharaoh is, first of all, bent but not quite broken. He lets the people go, but then changes his mind and marches his whole army out, and eventually God drowns them all in the Red Sea and utterly breaks them. In order to demonstrate that the God of the children of Israel is greater than even the full mustard gathered strength of the people of Egypt. God takes the Israelites right out the front door, so to speak, rather than sneaking his people out the back door. This is not a mission whereby some Navy SEALs go in in the middle of the night while everybody's sleeping with silencers on their pistols shoot a couple of night watchmen and sneak out a prisoner of war this is like knocking walking up to the front door in the noonday sun knocking on it it opens I'm here to get the prisoner of war no you can't have him yes I'm taking him anyway it seems that this is the sort of approach that God is intentionally taking in order to demonstrate his utter superiority over Pharaoh and all his hosts, a nation and its gods. In Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 1, the context is God speaking prophecies about his people with respect to their exile in Babylon. And he says, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. God in later years speaking to his people 
about their rescue from Babylon says, I essentially, I want you to know I am mighty to save. And in this passage, rescue, the rescue from Babylon is put parallel with the rescue from Egypt. If I go on later in that chapter, Isaiah 63, we read this. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his holy arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depth like a horse in the desert they did not stumble, like livestock that go down in the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. In other words, God says, I'm going to rescue you from Babylon so that you know I'm mighty to save. Just like I rescued the Israelites from Egypt so long ago in order that they might know I was mighty to save. I did it to make for myself a glorious name. In this case, it seems we do have the answer of why the people of Israel suffer in Exodus chapter 5. Why Pharaoh didn't just say, okay, go. God was setting up a situation whereby the full strength of Egypt would be on display and God would conquer anyway. So are we then God's people just pawns in a larger game of chess, so to speak? Well, in some sense, yes, we are. God is not ultimately concerned with our preferences. God is not ultimately concerned with our temporal circumstances. God's main priority is not to get you out of your poverty or to get you out of your sickness. God's main concern is not even to get people out of slavery. Remember, He left them in it for 400 years. That's more than a generation, which means some of his people were born, lived, and died in slavery. God is doing something bigger than making your life go smoothly. So in that sense, yes, you are a piece on his board. And God is arranging you and the other pieces on the board as he sees fit. To accomplish the bigger purposes of the game. And if any of you have ever played chess, sometimes you know. I'm going to move this piece here, and it's going to be taken. That piece will suffer. But it's part of my overall plan, which is a good plan. In that sense, yes, we are something like pawns in God's chess game. But in another sense, no. In terms of some negative connotations that we might attach to that metaphor. It's not as if God is unconcerned about us. It's not as if He neglects and abuses His people. 
if God causes us to go through suffering, it is His prerogative. Will the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? If God says, this is your law in life, who are you to complain about that? You're not the potter. You're the clay. But nevertheless, God is not unconcerned about His clay. God is not concerned about any one of the pieces on His board. And if He moves it into a position where it's taken, it is part of a greater and grander purpose. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, we read this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, there is glory to be revealed to us. God's plan is moving towards the revelation of glory to His people. And so, He might move you into a position of vulnerability, a position of danger, a position of suffering, a position of discomfort... And your life might be taken the way a pawn's is taken in a chess game. But just as the skilled chess master behind the move has a plan, so does God. There is glory to be revealed to His people. And God's plan of revealing glory to His people always leads through some kind of suffering. Maybe not the exact sort of suffering that's happening here with the Israelites in Exodus chapter 5. The degrees of suffering, the specifics of suffering may vary. Here we have an answer of why exactly it was. In your case, you might not have an answer of why exactly it is. But God's plan always involves some suffering for His people. Just like a chess game involves the movement, or the positioning at least, of all the pieces. Everybody's on the board. Everybody's in the game. So everybody suffers even though God wins. No one is exempt. Not even His Son. In Matthew's Gospel, the people were taunting Jesus as He hung on the cross. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now. If he desires him. You see the implicit assumption there? Anyone who God loves shouldn't be suffering like this. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. 
they assumed that if Jesus really was God's Son, if Jesus really was beloved of the Father, that He wouldn't be on a cross. But God's plan, which terminates in the revelation of glory to His people, involved even the suffering of His only begotten Son. Because without Him hanging on the cross, suffering, we would have wrath to bear. Without Him coming into this world and taking on flesh and dwelling among us and experiencing all the sorrows that are common to life in a fallen world and difficulty and pain, He could never have obeyed as a man on behalf of men. So God's plan, which terminates in the revelation of glory to His people, involved even the suffering of His only begotten Son. It also involves your suffering. It also involves my suffering. All of us will suffer. It involved the suffering of the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 5. Our preferences our comforts, our whims, our desires, our temporal circumstances, our bodily health, our financial security. These are not God's priorities. But that doesn't mean that He is unconcerned about us. He moves us as He sees fit, but it's all part of a greater plan which terminates in the revelation of glory to us. So as Romans 8 and verse 17 says, just before the verse I read for you a moment ago, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This is just the way that the Lord has written history. This is how it works. The cross comes before the empty tomb. The cross comes before the ascension. The cross comes before the crown. For Jesus, for every one of His people. This is how God has written the story. It's about Him. It's about His glory. It involves our suffering. He doesn't always give us the reasons why, but there are reasons why. His reasons why. We are the clay, not the potter. We don't get to choose. We need to accept that we are pieces on the board and He is the chess master. And He's not obligated to make it about us. And our survival. God is not obligated to make the chess game about protecting that particular pawn. That's not how it works. But it does not therefore follow that God doesn't care about the pawns on his chessboard. He tells us the opposite. For God's people, the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
Remember, God had said that the children of Israel would be enslaved and mistreated in Egypt. God told Moses, Pharaoh isn't going to let you go that easy. He's going to have to be compelled with a mighty hand. So Moses should not have been so disillusioned when Pharaoh didn't let the people go immediately. Pharaoh should have known this is exactly how God said it was going to go. And so I need to play my part in the unfolding storyline of which God is the author. He said that this is what is going to happen. I believe his promise that he will bring all things to the end which he promised. But I understand that suffering is part of the path to get there. And that it's not going to be just so easy as marching in, decreeing and declaring. He shouldn't have been so shocked. We read at the end of Exodus chapter 4. That Aaron spoke to the elders of Israel all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. Which means that they should not have been shocked either. Because part of the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses was, Pharaoh isn't going to let you go that easy. He's going to have to be compelled with a mighty hand. No one should have been shocked. Rather, they should have embraced the promise that God had made to them and embraced the path to that promise. Which involved suffering. Likewise, Christian... We ought to embrace the promise that there is glory to be revealed to us. We ought to embrace what God has told us, that there is a plan and that it ends well and that we will be rescued. But we also ought to embrace the path to that promise, which involves suffering. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But all the Christians are like, I'm having trouble. What's going on here? Christians are decreeing this and declaring that. And it's not so easy, is it? You're decreeing finances and favor and health. It's not happening. And everybody's shocked. Like, what's going on here? Like, what's happening here? Even people who might not be so bold as to decree and declare it, suddenly believe it. If God loves me, things are going to be alright in my bank account. If God loves me, things are going to be alright in my marriage, in my family, in my workplace. I'm going to have career opportunities and advancement. My body's going to be reasonably healthy. I mean, I might get a cold, but I'm not going to get cancer. And then you get cancer. And it's like, what? We feel like Moses here at the end of Exodus chapter 5. God, you haven't delivered your people at all. Here we are stuck in this world with cancer. You love us? 
You care for us? You're going to rescue us? But God never said it would be easy. In fact, God said the opposite. Just like He told the people of Israel, I'm going to get you out, but it's not going to be until after I've compelled Pharaoh with a mighty hand. So God has said to us, you're going to get out. But as the Apostle Peter wrote, you're not getting out till after you've suffered a little while. After you've suffered a little while, then the God of peace will comfort you. So we got to embrace the promise, but also embrace the path to the promise. That's what the Israelites should have done in Exodus chapter 5. And that is likewise what we should do. Believe that God will bring the salvation that He's promised. And we should endure and persevere with His promise before our eyes. And not be disillusioned when it's not all easy.